Greetings, everyone. This is Pill Eater. I'm here with Cartrell Payne. Today is April 29th, 2022. I'm here with Charles. Uh, what's your last name, by the way? Coulomb. Coulomb. Okay. I was. It looks like Columbia for a second. It's Charles Coulomb, correct? Yep. That's it. How would you introduce yourself to somebody who doesn't know what you're about? <laughs> well, first, I'd say he's very fortunate, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm a writer uh, by trade, uh, historian, uh, folklorist, uh, lecturer, all that sort of thing. My uh, last book was on uh, Blessed Emperor Carl of Austria, the one before that on the Holy Grail. I've written histories of rum, of the popes, of all sorts of things. So. I suppose you'd say I'm a typical freelance writer. I'll write whatever I can to be paid for. Does that include alternative history or any conspiracy theory? Not conspiracy theory, but uh, I have done an alternative history of the future called Star Spangled Crown. And okay. I have written a history of the United States, uh, which I suppose runs a little bit counter to uh, the kind of history you've read. So like... Was that Cartrell? Oh yeah, like you read, you wrote like the Catholic history of a United States. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But it's not simply a uh, a history of the Catholic Church in America. It's a uh, you might say a history of America through Catholic eyes would be a better way to put it. Would that be different <laughs> from say like a Jewish or a Muslim perspective on history? <laughs> well. Given that uh, there were there were there were some but very few Jews here from colonial days, and virtually no Muslims to speak of until well certainly uh, until the Civil War. Uh, yeah, I would say it's rather different. Uh, I mean, remember the, the the first permanent settlement of the United States of Europeans was uh, in Florida, fifteen thirty five, Saint Augustine. And uh, that was the beginning of Catholic America. Protestant America really begins in 1607 with Jamestown. Yeah, you know, some people say, you know, Plymouth Rock or something like that, you know, with the pilgrims or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's, let's put it this way. The, uh, the sort of history that uh, people had in my day was simply all about how wonderful we are. Now it's been flipped on its head and it's simply about how evil we are. Whereas in truth, um, the reality is in between and neither in both at the same time. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask like, um, you know, with, with Franco and stuff like, why didn't, when Franco won the Civil War, how come he didn't immediately, you know, like put, you know, like restore like the Spanish monarchy? Like he could have put Javier the first in charge. Well, he could have, but he had sworn allegiance to Alfonso XIII and uh, the, uh, the younger heirs were the heir of the younger branch. So he, he uh, felt, I suppose, suppose, constrained, but not sufficiently constrained to restore his son. He waited until uh, the grandson was uh, old enough, and then he took over his education. That was Juan Carlos, who just stepped down a little while ago. But... Um, I suppose uh, had he survived to see what would happen, he would be rather disappointed. 
Yeah, yeah, the Spanish monarchy isn't what it used to be. No, hard thing, really. How much do you have any of a reactionary fan base that are mostly Catholic, or do they translate your history to some political bias between left or right? Uh, no, I, uh, you know, I'm not the best judge of my fan base, uh, as I say. I certainly, uh, you know, if I if I were to, to characterize the average uh, my average reader, I would say that uh, it was probably young. Uh, that is to say, between eighteen and thirty-five, and disenchanted with uh, what uh, with the explanations he's been given. Yeah, that that kind of describes me. That's why I'm a fan of your work. Like, you know, I, I just can't stand the left versus right nonsense in modern day America. Like, I look at the Democrats, the Republicans, the Libertarians, and the Greens, and I admit they all have something I agree with on at least one or two things. But mostly, I'm disappointed with all those groups. Well, I mean, the the problem is that politics, as we've known them, have kind of how do I put it? They've kind of come to the end of where they can do anything useful. Uh, you know, my, my little joke during the course of the uh, pandemic was that when they had us put on our masks, they took theirs off. Uh, and by that, I mean to say that we were all raised with the illusion in Western countries that uh, the average voter had some control over his government. But we don't. And I mean, that's not a question of deep, dark conspiracies taking away our power. It's just the nature of uh, human society. There's always a minority who govern and a majority who are governed. Uh, what makes one society different from another is number one, the animating philosophy, the state church, if you will, which is not necessarily religious. You know, the, the communists said communism is a state church and it operated very much like a religion. Um, but that establishes legitimacy in the society, tells you what the rules are, and so on. And then from that, the question is, what is the nature of your rulership? What are they, what are they about? What are they into? That's what makes one society differ from another. Uh, the idea, how do I put it? The idea that somehow the majority have a voice in the day-to-day -day running of any society is, is a myth. Uh, they can have more or less influence but even the majority itself, I mean, what does that mean? A majority is a collection of different interests. Uh, it's not a, um, the politicians that claim to represent them are a, uh, a cast of people who do a job most of us can't do. Uh, to, to explain what I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of communism in Russia and various countries of Central Europe, you had some very fine idealists come to power in different places but they had no experience with actually governing and so for a while you had some real chaos because it's a skill like any other uh, and that's why in so many places you had quote-unquote ex-communists re-elected in short order it wasn't because they were popular it's simply because they knew how to run the machinery of government and they did well Similarly, with us, uh, the vast majority of us Americans really don't know how the system works or how to run it. Um, and that is what the politicians do. 
Now, whether or not they do a good or a bad job, that's a whole other issue. But they do have some knowledge of governance in a way that most of us don't. And it's even worse now because in my time, they did uh, attempt at schools to teach something like civics. And they don't really try that anymore. There are very, very few people, I think, your age, who really have the slightest idea of how the Constitution is supposed to function or how the government is supposed to work, let alone how it actually does work. Yeah, that reminds me of something, you know, Frank Zappa once said, like, he said when he was a kid, he, you know, Frank Zappa is older than you, but he said when he was a kid in 50s California, they used to teach civics, but, you know, he felt, you know, he, but when, when people start to learn about how physics, I mean, not physics, civics, about their government or whatever, you know, they started to take civics away from the classes or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, there are three things that are badly taught in most countries, especially uh, Western countries. And they are civics, history, and literature. They're very, very poorly taught of taught at all. I had kind of an odd experience a few years ago at Warm Springs, Georgia, which is where Franklin Roosevelt died. Um, in that I found that they no longer provide audio guides to look at the exhibits. And I asked the ranger why this was, and he said, well, it's a state facility. And formerly, the state of Georgia uh, funded the batteries to keep the audio guides going. But when the Georgia public schools stopped studying about Roosevelt, they stopped coming to the place, and the state government stopped funding the audio guides. So I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If they're not learning about Franklin Roosevelt, they're not learning about the Depression or World War II. What are they teaching them? I mean, and the ranger yeah, kind true. of shrugged and said, well, I don't know. I mean, so, well, that's true, but, you know, I know, but, you know, some museums are well-funded. Like, uh, I think recently I went to, like, a couple of weeks ago, might have been a couple of months ago, I went to, like, the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, you know, and it, it was well done. It's, I think it's still funded by the city, you know. It's still oh, I've done out of that, but the thing is, the fact that the, the state schools in Georgia I no longer teaching about Franklin Roosevelt is amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, he's not one of my favorite people, but as I say, the period that he covered, the Depression and World War II, in a lot of ways made the country what it is now. And if you don't know that, you don't really know a great deal about a great deal. I mean, that's true. You know, the New Deal Coalition, you know, and, yeah. and breaking a part of that in the 60s, which... In, inadvertently kind of led to, you know, politics becoming more polarized because the New Deal coalition, like it more or less was like machine politics, like both Republicans and Democrats were a part of it. And you could argue until the late 60s, it more or less controlled politics in America. Like they call it like, I don't know, the, the fifth or sixth system or something. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the thing too is that the federal government as we know it today an all-encompassing set of agencies is to a great degree the product of the New Deal. Uh, you know, it, 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 kind of, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit, but you get used to things as you're living life. So for instance, uh, back in World War I, before President Wilson could commit troops to Europe, 
he had to actually get Congress to declare war on Germany and later on Austria. And in fact, the only reason he had them declare war on Austria was because the Italian front collapsed. He wanted to rush troops there and he couldn't do it because the United States were neutral in the war between Austria and Italy. Well, today we're quite used to the president rushing troops wherever he likes for whatever reason. And we're, the vast majority of us are not aware that that was something that even, you know, even into my father's lifetime, simply wasn't legal. The most you could do, you could send in the Marines to rescue an American uh, ship or something, but you couldn't commit the country to a war without an actual declaration. And that, that's something we've completely forgotten if we ever knew it. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I was born in 1995, and in my, my lifetime, like, the presidents have always had, like, incredible amounts of power. Yeah, and it wasn't always so. I mean, uh, as time has gone on, the, the office has increased in power. But see, the problem with that, and there are a couple, you could make the argument on the one hand, that the various things that have become attached to the presidency, the various powers and so on, were absolutely necessary for the conduct of politics. You can make that argument. You can argue against it. But whether or not that's true, they were not part of what the office was designed to be. Um, you know, I, I, for all that I support monarchy, that's not what the presidency was supposed to be about. Uh, because a monarchy has other things going on, you see. Uh, it's not a question of the, uh, the most clever politician who gets best at feeding off the public trough. That's a whole other kettle of fish and a very different sort of person who get running your life for you. How would you describe if monarchy was reinstalled into the American government, would there be a radical change between destroying Republican or Democrat or any cultural change in the system? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, you asked me earlier if I'd written alternative history. Well, I actually wrote one, uh, although it's the future. It's called Star-Spangled Crown, and it tackles that very issue uh, of future monarchy in the United States. Now, mind you, I don't think anything at all like what I wrote about is going to ever happen here. But for such a thing to work, it would take a cultural change. But if it were successful, such a cultural change would happen. Uh, as I say, the, the presidency we have today is very different from that of 100 years ago. Very different. Um, and that change, we we most of us have accommodated ourselves to well all of us on some level since we're not uh, none of us are engaged in revolution against it so you know people in time people do tend to adjust to almost anything if they're not you know terribly abused uh one, th one thing to bear in mind is at any given moment in history the vast majority of people so long as they're not beaten or starved or have their stuff stolen are pretty content with whatever system they're living under and would probably prefer to be left alone with it than to be interfered with. But 
as we know from history, uh, very often that that wish on their part doesn't go doesn't get fulfilled. <laughs> Would that be different from say? Now, obviously, if somebody hears monarchy, they're probably going to think of a fasci fascist uh, dictatorship. But is that isn't quite the case, correct? Not at all. Uh, not at all. A fascist dictatorship is much more like what we've got. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, and this, this doubtless will be controversial, what I'm about to say, but it's a historical fact. When I was a kid, the vast majority of people in the United States believed that abortion was murder infanticide killing babies and when you saw abortionists on television or in the movies or whatever portrayed they were always these sleazy criminals well the uh, supreme court decided that in fact they weren't human beings the fetoi and they could be killed uh, at their mother's whim and shortly after that we began the uh, change in values that we've had since. I, I live to see all of this. I saw it all, you say. Uh, but that was the kind of change that Henry VIII couldn't have made. The alteration in marriage, the introduction of euthanasia. These are things that not Henry, not Louis XIV, none of the most powerful monarchs of more recent history could possibly have done. Even Henry, when it came to marriage, had to pretend he was obeying the law somehow. But our masters don't have to. They just do whatever they like, and we bark like dogs when we're told to. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, of course. I'd hate to, you know, be negative. Um, oh, yeah. Like, what do you think about the downfall of California? Like, you know, like... I, knew, I know this guy who lives in Orange County. He told me that when he was growing up, Dana Point, like a house was only like $1,000 or something. Now you got to be a millionaire just to live in Orange County now. It's crazy. Well, I mean, California has got to be one of the next to New York. I mean, they're, they're, California and New York you know, have always been great rivals. And having been born in the one and lived most of my life in the other, I feel a, um, a great love of both states. But in the past several decades, it's in a tight race to see who could be ruled by the stupider people. And it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to judge between them. In California, uh, you've got a state with a government that is doing its best to destroy the tax base, driving businesses out and so forth. And at the same time, trying to expand social programs and so forth. The problem with that is that it's your businesses and your wealthy who are the cows that get milked to uh, support the whole system. You drive them out, and eventually you're going to have to start really confiscating the uh, in what's left of the middle class. And you still see this apparatchik from Sacramento and, uh, uh, radio. And he was bemoaning a lot of money in California, but so much of it's still in private hands. And I thought, you, 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 I think you've got it completely reversed. 
the money actually, according to the theory of our government, the money is supposed to be in private hands with the government just given whatever they need to function. And that's... Um... But obviously this gentleman uh, had the opposite view. Listen. I think, Charles, you're breaking up. Can you hear me? I can hear you well, yes. Okay, if you could just repeat what you said before, you were just breaking up for a bit. Well, no, I, I just said that uh, the individual obviously believed that it was the purpose of the citizenry simply to feed the government rather than the uh, government to do what citizens are not capable of doing for themselves, which was the theory behind the California state constitution, as it was behind all of our state and even our federal constitution. Yeah, like, uh, what do you think about Prop 13? You know, like some people say it's unfair and it drives up prices and other people say it's probably the only way that middle class people can still afford to live in California. To me, I have kind of mixed views on the thing. Well, okay. Firstly, you've got to you've got to remember a few things. Uh, I remember when Proposition Thirteen was brought in, and it was brought in precisely because the elderly and people on fixed incomes were being chased out of their homes. Uh, you know, for the sake of feeding the government machine. Now, that's nice if we'll admit that we are owned by our government and that we don't deserve to have anything except what our masters give us. If that's going to be the theory of our government, then I've got no complaints. But if we're going to pretend that there's such a thing as the sovereign people and that they, are, they have a right to their property and their lives, well, then Proposition 13 was a very good thing. It certainly allowed the middle-class tax base to survive a bit longer. I guarantee you, if they succeed in destroying it, uh, you will chase a good chunk of the tax base right out of the state. And if that happens, well, you can expect bankruptcy for the state in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what the morons in Sacramento do with that. How would you say what's different from, say, what's happening in New York City, if you know that? Well, of course, the, the interesting thing about New York is that the difference between the city and the state, it, it really is a, uh, a dog wagged by a tail. But even there, uh, they put out de Blasio's regime. And I don't blame them. Uh, New York, actually, back in the late 70s, into the, year, into the 80s, was really going down the tubes, not just in terms of, you know, the bankruptcy, which was bad enough, but also the crime rate. And that was why uh, Giuliani became such a popular hero, because he dealt with both. He put the city's finances back in order, and he uh, smacked down the crime rate. Well, Bloomberg, his successor, is not one of my favorite people by a long shot, but he more or less maintained what he had inherited from uh, Giuliani. De Blasio, on the other hand, what an incredible moron he was. Self-proclaimed Marxist. First thing he declared he was going to do when he became mayor, thankfully, uh, there was adult supervision or something that prevented him from doing it. But uh, the first thing he was going to do was get rid of the um, get rid of the carriages in Central Park. Uh, 
which you know I don't know how much money those things bring in, but they bring in a ton. In the name of what? And he ran he ran City Hall that way. Uh, the crime rate grew, and we're, we're, they were fast returning to the dark days of the 70s. Well, I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think it could ever be like that bad again. Like, it's unlikely. Like, yeah, What's that? like what happened in the 70s and the 80s, that was like, a, I guess you could say like a historical moment because like in most of New York City's history, it's never been like that bad. So it's unlikely you could return to that. Well, you, you got to bear in mind that it didn't happen by magic. There were, there were definite reasons why it happened. One of them was that for the sake of getting votes and ensuring his, uh, his return, the uh, evil mayor, Lindsay, abolished the, uh, res the residency requirements for welfare. Now, what did that mean? It meant because New York had much more generous uh, uh, welfare and other benefits than other parts of the country, that it, you got a mass migration to New York of people who were interested, and I don't blame them, in uh, big, ha big handouts almost immediately. Well, guess what? They bankrupted the city. And in order to deal with it, they began taxing businesses more heavily, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens? Businesses leave. Well, <laughs> you know, a government cannot survive without a tax base. It just can't do it. And to have a tax base, you've got to have A, a certain number of people who can pay a lot of money, and B, a certain number of businesses that are generating income. You get rid of those two things, and what you've got is poverty row. And, you know, the, the, the I'll tell you, the reason why the Soviet Union fell in the 1980s was not because the Soviet leadership suddenly became nice guys. It fell for a very simple reason. They were no longer able to maintain the population at the bare minimum that they were used to. The, the system broke. And that, that was really what, what forced, them, uh, forced them to make changes. Uh, and that's what happens when you run out of dough. <laughs> you know, if you like, you can just print up more, but then you get inflation. Oh, yeah, that's a bad idea. You know, well, you may think it's a bad idea, but I assure you, it's it's one that governments throughout history have resorted to and they couldn't think of anything else. Yeah, Remember, that's, I mean, that's what the, uh, way more Republican Zimbabwe tried to do. Well, remember, too, that uh, during our Great Depression, the uh, one of the things that affected the country was that the prices and salaries were both dropping very, very fast. We were actually, believe it or not, going through deflation during the Depression. The problem was that salaries were falling faster than prices were, and prices were falling. And because prices were falling, farmers and manufacturers and all that, they weren't making money either. So one of the ways that Roosevelt tried to deal with that was by introducing inflation. And so he took the dollar off the gold standard and uh, basically tripled the amount of dollars in circulation, did some other things, none of which actually worked. What really got us out of the Depression, to be honest with you, was getting into World War II. Um, 
mind you, that didn't mean that they didn't build all sorts of things and do sorts, all sorts of interesting things during the Depression with the New Deal. They did. But in terms of ending the Depression, that would pretty much wait until we got into World War II with Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I've always wanted to ask, you know, how come Rhodesia didn't have a peaceful transition like South Africa? Well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, the South African transition was made a lot easier by the Rhodesian example. In other words, when the Rhodesians were not, uh, when the white Rhodesians were not immediately butchered, things looked a lot better to the white South Africans. Uh, also, you've got to bear in mind, too, that South Africa's system ended after the Soviet Union fell. And in the case of Rhodesia, what happened was that because their guerrillas were funded by the Soviets as well as by the Americans, it made, the, uh, it made their particular issue part of the Cold War. Um, but again, they were in the unusual position of, of fighting the Americans and the Soviets at the same time. And that also led to factionalism amongst the guerrillas against each other. Uh, it, was, it was a real mess, but not nearly as much of a mess as it became after Mugabe took over. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ro Rhodesia had so much pr promise, like, you know, if Abel Missouri. I'm probably not pronouncing his name right, but oh, it, it was the breadbasket of Africa, and now it's a basket case. Um, it's yeah. just the way it is. The uh, Mugabe was a, um, a real piece of work. Yeah, I mean and, Mandela, and plus Mandela was a better leader. Like, yeah, Man, well, Mandela was by far. A better, uh, a better leader than Mugabe, and frankly, is better than anybody who succeeded him in South Africa. That's true. Like, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the problems you have with any revolution, and you you might make the argument it was true of us in the United States, is that whatever conditions produced the generation that brings it about, the very fact of their victory changes things. And remember that Mandela, he came from a, a Zosa royal family, and he had a very good British-style education. Uh, he was a smart guy. Well, uh, only one of those three things could you say about most of his successors. And that's, again, just the way it is. I mean, yeah, that's true. Oh, oh yeah, like, like with the, the yeah the Russian Civil War. Like, who would you have supported? Like the White Army or the Green Army? Oh, the Whites, no doubt about it. But remember that the White Army uh, was very divided uh, ideologically and everything else. Uh, and this one of the problems you have uh, with the so-called counter-revolution is that very often, whether it was France uh, against the Jacobins or the, the white Russians or whomever you like, uh, for that matter, the resistance to the Nazis, they're very divided, the counter-revolutionaries are. 
They know what they don't want. But what are they going to replace the revolution with? That's that's a good point. Because, you know, like Chain Case Jake, like he had like a Emperor Puyi sister, you know, like executed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it becomes quite a uh, quite a difficult, difficult thing. Yeah. So Uh, it's like it probably didn't help that, you know, that, you know, that the monarchists and, you know, like the Chain Case Jake, they kind of turned on each other because because, you know, Mal, Mal probably took it, you know, like thought that was a good thing. He probably took advantage of that. Yeah, and of course, too, they were not. Uh, they simply were not quite clear on what it is that they were after, and that was one reason why they fell to fighting among themselves because they all had different ideas, different views, and so on. Uh, none of which, at the end of the day, were all that helpful. Yeah, it's just amazing to me that the Chinese communists didn't like kill Puyi and his entire family. Like they let them live. Well, indeed they did. And the the price of being allowed to live was turning over the imperial seals to Mao. Oh, yeah. And, you know, also giving up the Forbidden City, which had been there for like, I don't know, like thousands of years. Well, not thousands, but certainly hundreds. I mean, the, the funny thing about the, uh, the Chinese system is that they're, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, they're different dynasties. Usually the, the, the Manchu inherited the Ming Forbidden City. But usually, although they have the same pattern for imperial residences and all that, they generally built new ones and they took over in new capitals. Um, so the idea of the Forbidden City is thousands of years old, but the one we have now is not. We are reaching to the end of the podcast. And if there's any one last question Cartrell Payne wants to ask. Um, yeah, where do you see the counter-revolutionary movement going in America? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, I mean... Here, if, if ever there was a, uh, a question of what is it people really want and of, of division, I mean, conservatives so-called want to go back to the Constitution. Well, that's nice. Which one? The one we had in 1950? The one we had in 32? The one we had before Woodrow Wilson altered it? Uh, the one we had before the Civil War? You know, what? it's a moving target. Um, you know, I think that part of uh, Mr. Trump's difficulty is that while he knew what he didn't like and he had a very sentimental love of America, he didn't really have that much of a plan except to make America great again, whatever that means, Um, which sounds good. But, for instance, when he, uh, when he was asked about gay marriage and that kind of thing, he said, well, it's the law of the land. You know, we, we, it's just the way things are now. That's it. Well, okay. But when you say that, you've immediately accepted a big chunk of your opposition's program, haven't you? And then you have to justify to your base how you differ from your opponent. A lot of ways. 
many of their differences were more stylistic than um, than uh, real, although not entirely, to be sure. Um, one of the things that that really got me, though, when uh, Trump gave his speech in January of 2020 in uh, about about Rushmore, his fans were like, "Oh, this is great! It's wonderful!" and all that. Well. The thing is, that speech could have been said by any politician of either party when I was a boy. It was boilerplate, which yeah, I'm sure he was sincere and he meant it. That's not the point. But he, um, he did not really have a tremendous ideological alternative to the direction that we're going in now. And until and unless someone comes up with that, we're going to have problems. And of course, if someone does come up with it, well, then it'll be a question of who comes up with it and how they try to put it in place. My biggest fear right now for our country, to be honest with you, is that increasing polarization will end with a strong man. And at that point, it'll become entirely a question of him and his personality and so on, which is not not something we can predict. Yeah, that sounds kind of like China during the 1900s, the warlord era. Yeah, and I'd rather we not do that. <laughs> I, want I, I want to thank Charles and Cartrell Payne as we're at the end of the 40-minute mark. And... Uh, I hope to talk to you guys soon. And this is brought to you by youtube.com slash pilleater and pilleater.substack.com. Thank you, Charles, for being on. Thank you for having me. Take care. And uh, thanks for being on, Cartrell. You're welcome.